brace yourself for a scathing critique of the Western political economic class. And you don't need to agree. I mean, that's the beauty of the West. We have free speech, free ideas, free thinking. And in that tradition, we are welcoming Paul from the Sirius Report to the program, who is an expert on natural resources and geopolitics, energy, which frankly have made this business, you know, gone from a kind of a side business mining to pretty central in the discussion as people, you know, get more and more concerned about where these supplies are coming from. And as I like to say, I I, kind of prefer it when the news stays on my screen. And unfortunately for us, as we're all seen at the grocery store and other places, the news is not staying on the screen. And we're seeing some pretty dramatic inflation. Interestingly, I mean, I just saw an interview with David Rosenberg. And David Rosenberg thinks this is actually, he's quite confident that this is all going to pass, all of this inflation. And hopefully he's right. But that it, it feels like we're returning to that debate. And maybe we never left it. But that inflation really is the dividing line between where you see things going in the next two to three, four years. I mean, I think Paul from the Serious Report, I would think we can call him a, well, for, I don't know if he'd like being called an inflationist, but he's in the inflation camp, that, and a lot of people are. Uh, Rosenberg, on the other hand, and Rosenberg says he's being the contrarian. He thinks this is all going to pass. So all to say... We should take these ideas as ideas, and uh, which are just going to frankly improve our own perspectives on the world and w- to help us form our opinions. So, I mean, Paul Paul says some pretty controversial things. He says that Nord Stream 2 should be reopened. So, I mean, so brace yourself, as I say, for some, you know, free thinking here. But uh, this is all couched in some very intelligent discussions. So very exciting guest. We went way over time. Usually these interviews, I make half an hour or so. This went for like an hour and 10 minutes. So anyways, you have a banquet, a feast of ideas for you, a delightful meal. So that is coming up. And we also have the Global Mining Symposium, which is starting tomorrow. So, and there's going to be more on geopolitics there. So again, uh, you know, as I told Paul in a message, you know, the resource people finally have their time in the sun here. It's finally their time in the sun. So we have a really cool guest tomorrow on the Global Mining Symposium. And what's cool about the Global Mining Symposium is you can ask questions. So register at events.northernminer.com. Just hit register today. Underneath registration is now open. So register, register, register. And it starts May 25th. So that is a Wednesday tomorrow. And yeah, you're going to get some wonderful guests. Let me just go to our Twitter feed where we are highlighting them. And yes, we have Duncan Wood, VP for Strategy and New Initiatives from the Wilson Center. I assume that's the Woodrow Wilson Center. And he is joining the Northern Miner to talk geopolitics and the demand for critical minerals. Same thing we're discussing today. So you listen today, you listen tomorrow. I imagine you're going to start getting a pretty comprehensive view 
of what is happening from different perspectives. It could be a much different perspective. We also have Michael Spreadborough, Executive Co-Chairman of Novo Resources. And we also have the President and CEO of Torex Gold, who is Jody Kuzenko. We have Sandy Silver, Premier of Yukon, and many more. So another awesome Global Mining Symposium. Again, just go to events.northernminer.com. And finally, for our CEO spotlight, we have Ali Hadji, who is CEO and director of Ion Energy. And he talks about what it's like to work in Mongolia, which is super interesting. I mean, like, who knows what to think of Mongolia? And he gives us the word on the ground. So we say global mining news here at the Northern Miner, and you are getting global mining news. And it's interesting. I mean, this resource story increasingly is kind of truly global news. And we can almost get rid of the mining because that's almost a given at this point. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this program. It's a long one and it is a feast. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. And with that, let's turn to Ali Hadji, CEO of Ion Energy. Joining me today, I'm very happy to welcome Ali Haji, CEO and Director of Ion Energy, to this week's CEO Spotlight. Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to meet you. So tell me about Ion Energy. Uh, what are you guys up to right now? Ion Energy is an early stage uh, lithium brine explorer in Mongolia. Uh, we co-founded the company, uh, including myself and my chairman, Matthew Wood, back in August 2017. Uh, we currently hold 110,000 hectares of highly prospective brine licenses in the Gobi region of Mongolia. We commenced exploration shortly after going public uh, on the TSX Venture under ticker ION in August 2020. Uh, we've since uh, drilled uh, well over 200 holes on our Bavayul asset. Uh, we, we've almost doubled the maximum grade seen in historical drilling on that asset. Uh, but beyond that, we have uh, been able to kick off a very uh, extensive exploration program, if you will, on Urgach Narin, which is our secondary asset, 29,000 hectares, about 20 kilometers from the Chinese border. Uh, we've since uh, been able to complete a fair bit of work there, and it is uh, highly encouraging. So how is working in Mongolia? I think we had one company on in the past that was Mongolia. How do you find working there? I think it's been, uh, you know, pretty good working there. We've been there as a group over 13 years. Uh, we know that uh, the vast majority of the Mongolian economy is driven by mining. And as a result, you have enough skilled uh, labor in country in order for you to execute. Uh, brine is a bit of a different beast entirely because it's not something that has been done in Mongolia. We are first movers. Uh, but generally, when you look at the, the skill set available to us in country, the government and what they've done to incentivize uh, foreign investment and also increase transparency. Um, I think that's evident in, in Rio Tinto, almost tripling down on their investment with the Oyu Tolgoi project. We've had uh, Zijin mining out of China uh, that's just invested in Xanadu, uh, the copper player over in, in Mongolia as well. So in our view, we're long Mongolia. We think it's a fantastic place to do business uh, with the right skill set and the right people. Okay, excellent. And tell me about the people. Uh, who's on the team? What's going on there? Yeah, the team consists of uh, a mix of both uh, Mongolians and uh, international uh, individuals, if you will. Uh, Matthew Wood, my chairman, has been in Mongolia for the last 13 years. He had uh, a successful exit in the coal space back in 2011. 
uh, the sale of Hunu coal to Banpo of Thailand. He's also worked around the world building a copper company by the name of Avanco Resources that sold to Oz Minerals in March 2018. Then the rest of my board really consists of uh, two major Mongolians that I'd like to highlight, and then I, I will touch on some of the other folks because they are important. We have uh, Batatuma Rocher, who's the chief executive of Step Gold, also an advisor to the Ministry of Mining, was with the prior government, reappointed with the new government, so we are politically agnostic. Engtushin uh, Kishiksurin, my exploration director, he ensures we have access to the necessary equipment in country. And then we have Dr. Hashbat Dashtatserin, uh, who is a PhD lithium hydrogeologist uh, that spent a fair bit of time in Japan at Akita University studying the various resource types in Mongolia. So that's the Mongolian contingent and, and, and quite strong there. Uh, from an international perspective, we have uh, Don Haynes, uh, who is a PhD hydrogeologist as well, that's worked on assets around the world, including Lithium Americas and Neolithium. He's worked with the TSX to define what a 43-101 in the brine space should be uh, for, a, for a lithium company to go public. We have Dr. Mark King, another PhD hydrogeologist, in fact, the qualified person on file when Neolithium sold to Legion last year. Uh, him and I were both on site alongside Don uh, and Enki uh, about two weeks ago. We also have Dr. David Deek, uh, who is an ex-Tesla alumni. So we've built quite the formidable team. And uh, the, the chief strategic advisor, if you will, would be Paul Fornatsari, um, a partner at Faskin, an individual that uh, was a founding director at both Neolithium and Lithium Americas. So he really helps guide us uh, in terms of our, our value proposition and our strategic objectives. Well, yeah, I mean, that kind of expertise is probably quite useful. I mean, the lithium market has kind of gone, it's done quite well. When you look at those charts, it's taken a little bit of a pause, but it's just a plateau really more than anything. So tell us about your project then. What's going on at the project and what was the name of the project again for our listeners? It's uh, Urgach Naren, uh, but I will talk about Bavayo quickly. We did have a, a site visit, as I mentioned. Don was be with me alongside Mark and Enke, and uh, we'll put out some uh, news on that shortly. But we drove about 3,000 kilometers uh, through the Gobi um, about a week and a half ago. So we, we set up from Ulaanbaatar down to uh, Babayul. Um, we then went from Babayul over to Urgach Narin, uh, where the team had already begun a TEM program for the geophysics program. Uh, we're running eight lines there. We've uh, we've seen uh, resistivity that, that would be indicative of uh, uh, potentially a ply or a salar that you would find in North America or in LATAM. Um, so very promising in that regard. Uh, the salt flats uh, exist on surface. We were able to collect brine samples on surface, very similar to what was done, funny enough, at Neolithium and Lithium Americas when they were but junior companies. So those brine samples have now been submitted uh, to labs for assay. Uh, we expect those results to come to us uh, in, in about a week or two time, and those will be the early results. We've also commenced uh, an extensive auger program uh, down to 12 meters across the entire basin. So it is 29,000 hectares as a license. Uh, but the basin spans about 17,000 hectares of that. So a significant uh, piece of land with, with high potential, having both Mark and Don there in country on site and visiting with our technical team and giving us a sense of encouragement, but also saying that it is rather exciting now that they have boots on the ground and they're able to see uh, specifically uh, what would otherwise be impossible as a result of the pandemic. So we're extremely excited about what mm. we're seeing at Urgaknar. And we believe that we will start to, to sort of ramp up exploration there with uh, some monitoring wells going down uh, in the next quarter or so. Uh, but a lot of work has been done in the last uh, four weeks or so, and I'd like to commend my Mongolian team for executing so rapidly. Well, you can commend them here. So hopefully they're listening or you can send them the audio. So tell me, 
is this your main project then, or is the other one your main project? How do you see them in your mind? Is one a priority, sure. or are they both basically super exciting lithium projects? It's a good question. You know, Bob Ayol is, is, is a massive 81,000 hectare license. It is our flagship license. It's the license that we went public with. Um, it was the asset that took us uh, through the TSX and, and into the public markets. So uh, that is our flagship license. Uh, for a sense of scale, it's about five times the size of Vancouver. Uh, 81,000 hectares is, you know, you're 70 kilometers across, 16 kilometers long. It's not one that is small. And so as a result, uh, you, you know, should that asset have been high lithium grade across its entirety, we would be rivaling the majors. But as a result, we've seen now that it is quite concentrated in about 25 to 30% of the asset. So we did do some drilling uh, using our Mongolian staff last year. We had the opportunity to visit the site with both Don and Mark this year. That gave us an ability to understand better what work needs to be done in the future to better understand that asset and de-risk it further. So it's not that we're ranking these assets. None is more important than the other. But this opportunity that we've had in order to go to country will now dictate the program that we run on Bavayol that will help us de-risk it further. And with Urgak Naran, uh, given the fact that exploration work was being done based on direction from uh, Mark and Don while we were in country, Exciting things have been uh, have been seen, and we hope to replicate that at Balvayol in the future as well. So what is the roadmap here? Or I guess another way of framing this is what is the value proposition? In a sense, I guess, first of all, why should investors be excited about this company? I'll give you two reasons. One uh, being the fact that Mongolia ha- is indeed a first, or we are first movers in Mongolia for the lithium brine space. And as I mentioned, you, you know, th- there hasn't been a skill set from a hydrogeological perspective to, to better understand our assets during the course of the pandemic. If you look at LATAM and you look at other lithium producing regions of the world, that skill set is local. And if you look at the equities of those companies that have these local skill set uh, or employees, they have uh, increased, uh, you know, three, four, five X, in some case, 10 X over the, the pandemic. We've been able to get a little work done. We're a fully funded company. We've taken on the foremost hydrogeological specialists to Mongolia, and we've now kicked off those programs that would allow us to catch up to our peers. So we are massively undervalued in that regard. And I see the fact that we are fully funded being a massive sort of uh, differentiator. Uh, between ourselves and uh, those that are in the market today. Um, you also have to consider that the cost of labor in Mongolia is is relatively cheaper than the rest of the world, as well as our proximity to the largest consumer on the planet. Uh, being 20 kilometers from the Chinese border, quite a compelling case should we produce um, lithium of high grade uh, and have sufficient quantity as well. And that is my final question for you. In a sense, it, it ties in with this roadmap idea. Is that your goal, in a sense, to basically provide lithium for automobile batteries, electric vehicles, or is it something else? Or what, what is the kind of roadmap, the end goal? What are you trying to produce here uh, in terms of product to get to market for people to produce? Absolutely. That that would be the, you know spot on. Um, we're seeing a lot of downstream uh, consumers now come into the, the, the upstream mining side of the house. You've seen Tesla sort of invest in, in mining projects around the world. Recently, you've also seen uh, the auto manufacturers in, in China and Europe do the same. So uh, yes, absolutely. The goal of ION is to feed the ever-growing demand for lithium in order to allow this clean green energy revolution. Okay, excellent. Any parting thoughts, Ali, before we go? It's been a pleasure to be here. And uh, as always, for our listeners, if you have any questions, I'm one of those rare breeds that answers my phone irrespective of time or phone number. So do give me a call and I'll be happy to talk to you. Well, that's excellent. Special privileges for the Northern Miner podcast. And if people want to find you online, it's ionenergy.ca. Ali Haji, CEO and Director of Ion Energy, thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. Thanks very much, Adrian.
And thank you once again to Ion Energy for sponsoring this week's podcast. Learn more about them at ionenergy.ca. And turning to the website, we have a big obituary here of Graham Farku Harson, who says here was the straight shooter who busted Briex and changed the industry. So this is by Naimul Karim. Yeah, I mean, the Northern Miner was right on this story in the 90s. In May 1997, the editorial staff of the Northern Miner broke one of its own rules and bought an equity position in Briex Minerals. Journalists normally aren't allowed to buy shares in companies they cover, but this paper spent $60 at the time to secure share certificates that could be framed. This so that the newsroom never forgot the Busang scandal and Graham Farku Harson's role in unearthing a sham that changed the way mining companies report to the public. Farku Harson passed away on May 2nd in Toronto at the age of 81. He was the head of Strathcona Mineral Services, a consulting firm that audited the Busang property in Indonesia, a project that Calgary-based Briex Minerals claimed contained one of the world's largest gold deposits. The announcement by Briex in 1995 sent the company's shares soaring from a mere penny stock to a peak of $286.50 in May 1996 on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Sounds like crypto, doesn't it? And now people are talking about crypto. Even all the crypto people are saying it needs to be regulated. Continuing on, Strathcona's audit, however, revealed that the results were tampered with and the only gold at Busang was the gold that Briex used to salt its samples. While the scandal tarnished Canada's mining sector, it highlighted Farku Harson's credentials and finally, but the Timmins-born mining engineer's credibility was well known even before the Briex scandal, explains James White, co-author of the book Briex, Gold Today, Gone Tomorrow, and former editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. And another quote from White, Strathcona had a record of successful mine building by that time and was brought into many projects to see if they could be turned around. It always fell to Strathcona to tell investors the bad news. That gave Graham and Strathcona immense credibility because he didn't shrink from telling it straight. So another a very interesting contributor to the mining industry has passed in Toronto at the age of 81. Our thoughts go to the family. And continuing on, BHP to speed up Janssen potash mine as Ukraine war weighs on supplies. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi. BHP's chief executive, Mike Henry, wants to gear up the company's $5.7 billion Janssen Potash project in Canada as Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused major disruptions to global fertilizer supplies. The ongoing war in Ukraine has left the world not only short of important grains, but also fertilizers, since neighbors Russia and Belarus account for almost 40% of global production. And we discussed this in depth at the end of the interview coming up. Belarus state-owned potash miner Belaruskali set off alarm bells mid-February by declaring force majeure on its contracts. This shook up a market that was already contending with soaring prices. Sanctions on Russia after invading Ukraine have made the situation worse. And we have a quote here from Mike Henry at the Bank of America's Metals and Mining Conference this week. Quote, supply-side disruption linked to the war in Ukraine has positively reinforced the decision we've taken to enter potash. 
We're making good progress and we're looking at potential to accelerate Janssen Stage 1 first production into 2026. BHP had originally planned to kick off production at Janssen in 2027. The company, Henry noted, has also begun studies for a second phase of development. Quote, BHP is trying to accelerate first tons at Janssen, but it still seems best case is first tons come late 2026 with a two-year ramp. End quote. BMO Fertilizers and Chemicals Analyst Joel Jackson said in a note to investors. And this is the problem, isn't it, with so many of these projects? It's like it really takes time. I don't know why it takes two years. Like you'd think, but I mean, these are massive infrastructure projects. We believe BHP needs to hire about 600 miners for Janssen with the labor per ton deemed lower than competitors' Nutrien and Mosaic's incumbent mines. Is BHP expected to employ less equipment per ton and other innovation? So BHP speeding up its Janssen mine. I believe that's in Saskatchewan. It is. It's in northern Saskatchewan. As we said, also relating to our topical interview, we have reports from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Henry Lazenby, from mining in Daba to the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, is traveling the world for us. Metal scarcity could slow energy transition. Again, we go into depth on that in this upcoming interview with Paul from the Sirius Report. And the article by Henry Lazenby says, while the movement to an electrified future is already picking up pace... It will be much slower than some of the optimistic projections in the market today, CPM Group founder Jeffrey Christian told an industry event in Vancouver. He took silver as a prime example, pointing out that hundreds of millions more ounces of silver would need to be produced to keep up with the projected linear magnitude of the industry's growth. The impact of solar power growth on silver because of the green revolution is meaningful. And he says, quote, Solar power has gone from virtually no silver use 25 years ago to about 120 million ounces a year now, and that's going to continue to grow. End quote. He has seen many, quote, overly optimistic expectations, end quote, of how fast the green revolution can come. And this also we discussed. So you see these topics. The narrative is getting very interesting in mining, isn't it? Because it's starting to merge a lot more with the general political narrative, which is fascinating. Christian cites the International Energy Agency projecting that by 2050, primary source of energy for humankind will still be oil. The second largest will be natural gas. Quote, and all renewables combined will have supplanted coal only after 2040 to be the third largest, he told the conference. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, and everybody else who's sober knows that those governments have not lived up to their Paris Accord commitments and really have no ability to live up to those. It's an idealistic scenario. It's just not there now. And you know, this is becoming an even, just like a massive theme, which is idealism versus reality. Idealism versus realism. And I'm starting to see it crop up everywhere, and not just in the mining sector. But you know what's interesting? Because mining deals with real things... Maybe that's where we're seeing it really, that contrast between idealism and reality show up first. A couple more quotes here. Recycling will slow the growth rate of new silver required by the industry, but it won't slow the growth rate of total silver used in the industry. So recycling will help, but it's not going to slow growth of the silver used, okay? Quote, while silver goes into EV electronics, there are other constraints to the green revolution, such as the world not having enough clean energy to power the vehicles. The grids are not stable enough. There's not enough lithium, high-purity nickel, verifiable cobalt, and manganese, and there's not enough capital for the smaller companies that actually make these components and mine the stuff. 
Jim Lewis, the co-founder of Wall Street Silver's popular news site, provided some more context. Quote, the figure that Mr. Christian used of 120 million ounces of silver used in solar today accounts for only 2% of our electric grid being powered by solar. Various governments worldwide are mandating 10% or even 20% coming from wind and solar soon. Let's assume the silver solar power grows fivefold over some period of time. That means that solar power would be using half a billion ounces. This is sort of pie-in-the-sky type stuff. You know, I was listening to a podcast, I think it was Doomberg, and he was describing a lot of the, you know, how a lot of these, the political class are sort of going to cocktail parties. And he was sort of satirically saying, you know, like they think food comes from, you know, these people that are serving hors d'oeuvres. that It just shows up in a plate at these parties. And there's kind of this disconnect in the political class of, you know, or as uh, Paul from the Serious Report says, you know, you just go to the grocery store to get more food. Like this is like, we're so used to it that it's just become an abstraction. The reality of these things and where they come from is very far removed. And, you know, anyway, we have an hour and 10 minute interview, so no need for me to go any deeper into it. Another report from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, U.S. Canadian companies set to soar on Russia uranium ban. So you see how it's all coming together here. Also by Henry Lazenby, our reporter on the ground at that conference, U.S. and Canadian-based uranium companies are set to soar on a looming Russian production ban in the Western world. GoldSilver.com's senior precious metal analyst Jeff Clark told an industry event on May 17th, quote, uranium is already in a bull market. Yes, those prices have come down just like the others have, but for fundamental key reasons such as supply demand and growing political support globally for uranium and nuclear power is growing, he said. I think the takeaway is, like, if anything's going to spoil David Rosenberg's party, that this inflation really is transitory, it is going to be this supply crunch. Like, that's the fly in the ointment, because he's basically saying it always works when the Fed reduces demand. This is the, you know, trillion dollar question, isn't it? Will it work this time? Or will they tighten and inflation will remain high? This is the big trillion dollar question. According to Clark in the U.S., there's widespread political support for a ban from every party except for a very tiny minority of people referring to the ban on Russian exports of uranium. Quote, it will lift and make the U.S. and Canadian uranium companies very, very attractive. They're still reliant on Russian uranium, yet the ban is coming. And, and if you want to see the companies he highlights, just go to northernminer.com and you'll see four uranium picks that Jeff Clark is excited about. Just go to VRIC, Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. U.S. Canadian companies set to soar on Russian uranium ban. And finally, a couple more headlines. Horizonte kicks off construction of nickel mine in Brazil. So a new nickel mine is being kicked off in Brazil, thanks to Horizonte Minerals. You can read that by Cecilia Jamasmi. And also, Neocorp reveals large rare earth resource at Elk Creek Project in the U.S. And that's by Naimul Karim. So they're finding some more rare earths in the U.S., and interestingly, the former CEO of Mollycorp seems to be the company's current CEO. Mark Smith said, quote, Given recent geopolitical events and the world's ongoing global energy transition, we feel a strong imperative to produce more of the critical minerals that America and the Western world needs to meet these challenges. So you can read that whole story, but you see it's all one story these days. It's different facets of one big story. 
Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And we missed the 10-year bond at the top of the program there, which I usually like to list just for a kind of context for us. And the U.S. 10-year Treasury bill is now at 2.822%, down 0.09% from last week. So... Bond yields continue to fall, which is probably why the stock market had a good day yesterday. High bond yields were scaring people off a little bit. And as Gareth Soloway pointed out in an earlier show, the higher those bond yields go, the less attractive the stock market gets because all of a sudden you're getting 3% on a bond. So why take the risk in the stock market? Now, turning to our metals... Gold is trading at $1,858.30 per ounce. That is $29 higher than last week. So nice bounce back there from gold. Silver is trading at $21.94 per ounce. That is $0.15 higher. So gold moving more than silver. Platinum is trading at $961.54 per ounce. That is up $7 from last week. And palladium is trading $20 lower at $2,009.95 per ounce. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.30 per pound. That is $0.19 higher than last week. Aluminum is $0.10 higher at $1.33 per pound. Lead is trading at $0.97 per pound. That is $0.03 higher than last week. Nickel stays steady a little higher at $12.68 per pound. That is $0.22 higher than last week. Cobalt is trading at $33.75 per pound. That is down $3.19 from last week. And zinc is higher at $1.70 per pound. That is $0.11 higher. So metals recover a little bit, but still stay low. I mean, it reminds me of what another thing that Rosenberg says. He says another sign that the commodity bull market is going to be short-lived. He said two things. He was at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, and this was on Kitco. And he was saying how all the smiling faces brought out his inner contrarian. You know, everybody's bullish on commodities, so maybe this thing is just about up. And he also pointed out that miners being down, for him, the stock market is a forward-looking indicator. So mining stocks being down for him is a sign that the party... The jig, so to speak, may be up. What I see here is gold and silver recovering. Basically, precious metals bounce off of, you know, it's around $1,800, maybe slightly lower. But precious metals bounce off of support, while industrial metals lightly recover, but nothing special. Just a small, I don't even want to call it a bounce, just move slightly higher, generally speaking, except for cobalt with a noticeable fall. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, we have Paul from the Sirius Report. And Paul is a former physicist. He did a PhD in physics. And I was actually joking with him, you know, that may be better preparation for the news than journalism school because you are forced to deal with reality. And it doesn't matter what story you bring to physics, you have to deal with reality. He liked that, and I appreciated the laugh. So... 
Here is Paul, former physicist. He's been working on the Sirius report for, I think, around six or seven years. And just a really interesting guy who's starting to get some more popularity out there. He was saying on Twitter, his following took six years to get to 10,000 and four months to get to 50,000. So he is doing very well and offers us whatever you think of what he says, offers some very insightful ideas on what may be happening out there. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome... Paul from the Sirius Report, the Northern Miner podcast. Paul, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, and thank you for getting in touch to have this chat today. Very much appreciated also. Well, I appreciated you replying. I think I heard about a minute and a half of you on a podcast on YouTube, and I thought, I have to have this guy on the program. <laughs> this guy is so interesting. Kind of rang true what you were saying, and it was really nice to hear it. And so I just thought I have to get this guy on the program. And luckily you replied. So help our listeners out. Probably most people haven't heard of you, but some I'm sure have. Could you give us a little quick background on who you are and how you came to start the Sirius Report? Okay, just very, very briefly. Yeah, I was originally an academic uh, physicist. I left academia pretty quickly because I wanted to, to move into to the real world, as I call it. So I actually, having left academia, went into the financial sector and worked in a lot of banks and did a whole bunch of different things uh, and kind of around got pretty disillusioned prior to the global financial crisis. And then having predicted it, nobody, well, very few people listened and then kind of left sort of in the immediate aftermath of Lehman. And then kind of worked with various people in mergers, acquisitions, in mining sector and other things for quite a few years. How the serious report came about was, and I don't want to get into this because it's just, you know, it's everybody's life, but we had a lot of uh, family issues. On my side of the family, unfortunately, there was a lot of bereavements and it was impossible to carry on doing things the way Obviously, everyone knows who Lisa is. And he's my wife, and she said, why don't you start a podcast series? You know a lot of stuff. Just put it out there and maybe, you know, see where it goes. And six and a half or over six and a half years later, we're still doing it. And we've done nearly 1,450 episodes. And so that's how that came about. And it was it was something I could manage to do with trying to manage all of the issues on a, on a sort of personal level. And that's how it – so it kind of came about purely as a result of other – circumstances and uh, didn't really have any expectation, didn't know where it would go, but it's obviously we progressed and we keep progressing and and obviously the audience is growing and doing things with yourself helps to raise our profile. And in essence, what we've done is said, look, there's, there's two worlds colliding, there's the end or the death of the unipolar world was principally obviously revolves around the United States and its allies. Not, you know, people think the unipolar world is, is going to exist in the future because it's one world governance. Well, that's clearly not the case. And we also, so we sort of track the decline of that and all the developments and the interaction with the multipolar world and all the developments of the multipolar world, which is Russia, China, the global south, 
Southeast Asia, Africa, Central and Southern America. And how those two worlds, of course, collide. They, they exist independently to some degree, but there's a lot of interaction between the two as the unipolar world wants to, to survive and it wants to thrive, even though it's in terminal decline. And it wants to prevent the, 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 the ongoing development of the multipolar world for very obvious reasons. And because it's going to be non-dollar centric, it's a very different kind of mindset of how nations work to cooperate with each other with the view that we don't want global conflict anymore. It's win-win cooperation. And people say this is not reality. It can't happen. But it is already happening in quite significant ways that a lot of people in the West don't really understand how that's possible or that it's even a reality because their world is very Western-centric. So the world only exists in terms of, say, North America and Europe. You can probably include Australia, Japan, South Korea, and, and probably Singapore, and, and maybe New Zealand. But apart from that, they don't seem to comprehend that there's this huge world that's been going through enormous developments for, in, well, in China's case, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, in Russia's case, since the fall of the Soviet Union, but in maybe the last 10, 15 years, these enormous changes that are coming into play in, in Southeast Asia, as an example, and how the world's evolving in Central, South America, and Africa, and even the Middle East, for that matter. So that's very broad terms, why we did what we're doing, why we, what we do today, and and, and all the interplay between these two worlds, which is always the way as empires collapse, something will replace it. Something has to fill that void. But again, it's filling the void in a completely different way. It's not going, well, one hegemony is ending and another one must stop. Well, I think that's what I like about you. what you do the most is your comprehensive global view we're all looking for perspective here. And so, and it's really hard to do to have that, again, comprehensive view. So uh, as I was telling you earlier, I think our challenge here is going to be, how do we keep this conversation in a fairly structured and almost like, how do we reduce it to some basic things so that people can walk away with something that they learn that they can kind of crystallize here. So I thought we'd, we'd focus on energy and metals. So starting with energy, uh, which seems to be a pretty important topic, obviously, do you have a global kind of, what is your big picture view on energy? Okay, well, we can, you can principally drill it down into oil, gas, I mean, and there's nuclear, so uranium is a really hot topic for people. You've got renewables, which I'm very scathing about, and, you know, and then maybe other energy resources. I mean, fusion something that interests me because I was a physicist. And I'm not saying fusion's going to happen anytime soon, but it's going to happen sooner than people think. And that's the kind of holy grail for energy when eventually, and we will eventually, whether it's in 20 years, 50 years, 10 years, it doesn't matter. When that becomes commercialized, then the whole world changes in the blink of an eye. But let's park that because that's not realistic at this point in time despite enormous global efforts to uh, to make that commercially viable. So oil and gas markets, obviously, we've seen an enormous hike in oil and gas prices. And it's uh, clearly that has an enormous impact globally, because as we've said, energy is the lifeblood of any nation, whether you 
have the energy or whether you need to import the energy. Because ultimately, it's what drives your entire economy. And, and therefore, if energy prices are skyrocketing, everything in your country is going to end up skyrocketing. So that causes producer price inflation, massive increases. It will affect CPI, okay? Ignore the illusionary figures we're given because they completely underestimate the reality of it. But we're seeing producer price inflation. Recently, Germany, it rose in the month of April, 33.5%. So this is going to impact economies. Now, what's the issue principally? Uh, and we'll focus maybe on Europe as an example, because it's something that you know, is crystallizing in people's minds because of the Ukraine war and you know, the, the sanctions on Russia. And, and with the United States wants to hive Europe off from Russian energy, and they have been prior to the Ukraine war saying, well, you know, we can provide your energy needs, which in reality is simply not the case. So Europe's thought in, in, in its uh, delusional mindset, well, we, we can hive off from uh, Russian oil and gas. We don't need it. We can somehow magically go and buy oil and gas from the rest of the world. And Europe needs about 155 billion cubic meters of, of uh, gas from, from Russia annually. Well, you can't just magically obtain that gas from alternative suppliers because the, the argument would be they just produce this and they're not selling it to anyone. Well, that's not you know, how the energy markets operate. So so fundamentally, the issue is that for now, whether they like it or not, Russia is, is a major supplier of, of oil and gas and you cannot circumvent this. But one of the problems also with in Europe's situation and globally is this so-called ESG, this move to renewables, which is simply you cannot produce enough energy with renewables to, to circumvent the issue of, of a shortfall in reducing nuclear power, in reducing coal consumption and oil and gas. You just simply can't do this. And they again just thought, oh, we can magically produce all these wind turbines and solar farms. And it will more than compensate for, for us shutting down, you know, so-called fossil fuels. And that is another serious problem that they just completely underestimated the, 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 the fact that, you know, they say, well, the wind wasn't, didn't blow quite strong enough or, you know, the, the, the output from solar farms wasn't as high as we expected, but they, because they don't understand the comp uh, and comprehend that it's not simply a question of, well, just produce more of the, this. And it will, you know, make up for the shortfall of, of fossil fuels you previously consumed. And of course, now, because of this war and this ideological hatred of Russia, they're more determined than ever to wean themselves off. And there's now talk, well, we need to scale up uh, renewables without asking themselves the question, well, if I want to make a wind turbine, what, what part, you know, what are the constituent parts of a wind turbine? And how do I extract the resources to make that wind turbine? Because I need energy. With energy costs are skyrocketing, then you're then, and maybe there's a shortage uh, in certain capability to produce those things. Maybe it's a short term, maybe it's a long term. Well, that means that the cost of producing a wind turbine is going to astronomically increase, or a solar farm. And who, who am I depending on? To buy the raw materials, to you know, in order to um, to manufacture these, even if I manufacture them domestically, which is not always the case. So, and it's one of those situations in the West we're not thinking 
of the long-term consequences and saying, well, even if we want to have a long-term view of, of weaning ourselves off Russian energy, can we do it? Is it viable? Is it commercially viable? Or is it, in, you know, in 10 years' time, can we, even if we could source the same amount of oil and gas we do from Russia now, can we possibly do that in the future? Maybe those energy supplies won't be available because Russia's consistent. It has enormous oil and gas supplies. It, from my perspective, they've got 100 years, 200 years worth left. They can just wow. keep pumping it. And the West can have it. If the West abandon this ridiculous ideological mindset when well let's look at this ukraine war russia is still providing energy to ukraine it's providing transit fees even though it's at war with them effectively. well that shows reliability and the problem the west faces is because of these hostile actions from the russia's perspective in terms of sanctioning their banks sanctioning the central bank and threatening oil and gas embargoes and trying to, they feel, cripple Russia. Russia, and it's a long-term trend, it hasn't just started. They're going, well, okay, we're going to pivot to Asia because, as we said, Asia's the major growth center. That's the multipolar world. So we can sell energy to these nations instead. So we'll start to wean ourselves off you because they're reliable markets. They're going to buy our energy. They know we're trustworthy and reliable. And they're not going to sanction us because then we'll trade in non-dollar terms, which means, you know, everyone's going to be extremely secure in getting their supply and being paid. It's as simple as that, you know, you know, supply and demand. And the demand's going to be extremely great in the global south because they're emerging vertical growth markets in the West. As I've said before, we've reached saturation point. We're consumption-based economies. And and we've got to the point they're so desperate for us to keep consuming that they that everyone has to constantly be in debt. So we just recycle debt to keep consumption-based economies going to buy things we no longer need effectively. But that's a whole separate discussion. But the point is, is what happens if Russia rotates all of its energy supplies and, and ends up going to Europe? Well, we're not providing you anymore. Our contractual agreements expire. We're not giving you this energy. And they're not thinking about the consequences of this. And the thing is, Russia can say what it calls friendly nations, the global south, and go, you know what? Oil might currently cost $100 a barrel, but we'll sell it to you for 70 because it's still very profitable for, for Russia to sell it at that price. Or, you know, we're going to sell you energy. Well, you know, we might be charging Europe $1,300 uh, per thousand cubic meters. Well, for the global south, we'll sell it to you for 300, 400. It's no problem because this is the thing the West doesn't understand. The Russian economy internally isn't charging itself those prices. It can produce energy very cheaply. So it helps to stabilize their internal economy. And what, and the same goes for, for the friendly nations, as they call it. Well, look at uh, Japan. Japan's now suffering enormously because of hugely inflated energy costs because it's dependent on all its energy in, in import terms. So that's going to massively impact its general economy. So it doesn't matter how much you manufacture. Again, it's back to the point that if the raw constituent of your economy is energy and you're having to pay higher and higher energy costs, it's going to impact you. So who's the major beneficiary is a nation who has all the energy, their food secure, which essentially Russia is. 
and they can they can dictate terms and say to unfriendly nations who are trying to cripple them and destroy them, well, you're going to pay the price. The rest of the world will will we'll negotiate, and we'll, you know, or maybe we can reach a point where, you know, there's there's things you can export to us, and and we'll export energy to you, and we'll reach a deal, and it's a very amicable deal. It works for all parties. And it helps stimulate growth. It will lower inflation in these parts of the world. And whereas the West will just having spiraling inflation simply on the basis that it's so dependent on energy. And it's just that narrow-minded viewpoint that says, well, we'll just cut ourselves off. We're going to destroy Russia's economy, which won't happen and isn't happening. But in the process, the boomerang effect is that it's going to, to destroy our own economy. So the question is, in the long term, and and this is, you know, is if Russia's pivoting away from Western markets and moving to the global south, there's certainly evidence, certainly Iran is going to sell, increase its energy uh, exports, and it will do so to the friendly nations in the global south. Question is, what about the Middle East? The Middle East in terms of OPEC plus and Saudi and Russia dominating in those markets and very much supporting each other. They're going to say, well, is Saudi going to go, well, we'll sell our energy to, to the global south? I mean, increasingly, the risk is the West will have massive energy shortages, not because the energy necessarily doesn't exist, but because we're just not providing because you're untrustworthy. You demonstrated with that you sanctioned the Russian central bank. That was probably the biggest mistake the United States and Europe's ever made because it sent a message to the rest of the world. Well, if you don't agree with us, we'll cut you off from SWIFT. We'll sanction your central bank. We'll steal your, your bank, you know, Forex reserves. I mean, it's outright theft. And it might sound great from a West perspective, how we're going to cripple Russia, but it sends extremely bad signal to the global south. Well, Russia and China warned us about this for years, that they would do this. Now they're doing it. Well, maybe we're next. And unlike Russia, they won't be able to cope with that kind of fallout. The countries would collapse as the West would if you undertook sanctions like the West did against Russia. If that happened to the United States or Europe, these countries would collapse in the blink of an eye. Let me stop you there. because So this is fascinating. And I think it's worth highlighting because it's a simple point, this idea that there's a link between energy and economic prosperity. Uh, it's it's kind of easy to gloss over, but this is, you might argue, this is a profound point that a lot of the renewable mindset, which we're all kind of for a healthy, uh, environmentally friendly planet here, but that sometimes maybe gets lost, is that if you, when you start cutting off, say, Russian energy, for example, and not have a clear replacement that's reliable, you are risking your economic prosperity in a profound way, which brings me back to a circle back to, say, Europe and energy. And like, I think some people were surprised at how Germany kind of doubled down on renewables as being the solution when they had nuclear power plants that are actually still, as far as I understand, still running and just kind of being, you know, slowly shut down. And I don't know if you saw that article in the Financial Times as the you know the reason why Germany is shutting down its nuclear power, but it sounds like it's mostly uh, a. I mean the reasons they gave. I read it on the program. Uh, the Greens 
have been speaking against nuclear power for the last 10 years. So it'd be too, so for face saving reasons, they cannot now support it. And then they went to the nuclear operators in Germany and they said, basically they don't have the insurance. Like we're not pumping another, uh, you know, watt of power after 2023 because the government is basically not going to back us if anything bad happens and the shareholders basically aren't willing to take that risk. So I guess back to Europe and say Germany, I guess it's kind of like a softball of softball questions here. Like, obviously, what do you think? Should they ramp up their nuclear power in Germany? Absolutely. I mean, and just to put this in context, <laughs> in the next decade, what's China doing? It's going to build 150 nuclear power stations because it, you know, and, and okay, there's an argument. China has this uh, kind of carbon neutrality by 2060. And uh, whether it's, I mean, whether that's re a reality or not, it's not the point. But even they go, well, as much as we want to move more to renewables, we understand full well. And that's a long term process. And even if it's feasible, I mean, way back, I'd have to find out, I did a a whole 40-minute podcast, which destroyed the whole green revolution and explained in very simple terms. And we can cover that in a second, why that's a reality. But yes, they they should be you know, looking to expand and build nuclear power plants. But again, it's this ideological mindset that, well, remember Chernobyl in the 80s. Uh, that's, they think nuclear power plants are very unstable, and they're not anymore. They're extremely reliable, extremely safe. They're environmentally uh, a good option. And, okay, there's the issue of uranium and sourcing uranium, et cetera. Well, that's a whole separate subject. But, yes, they they should be focusing on that. They they should switch on Nord Stream 2, which arguably is debatable whether Russia would even agree to that now. But they need Nord Stream 2 on. They need to be building nuclear power stations. But the problem with that is how many years is that going to take? Two, three, five years? And then the issue is where are you going to source? Again, it's sourcing uranium. Where do you get reliable uranium supplies from? You know, if if that uranium is already being bought up by China because they're building 150 new nuclear power stations, where are you going to source it from? You know, and this is this is the problem. It's all this idea that this just in time mentality that exists in the West. That you know, I need some food, I go to the supermarket. If I need something, I just buy it and and it arrives the following day. Well. Western governments don't seem to understand that doesn't apply to to oil, gas, and commodities, and, and uranium, etc. And these things take years to build. If you want to build an LNG terminal, it can take three years. And who's financing it? How are you going to pay for it? And you know, it's it's just this very simplistic thinking. And with regards to renewables, a, a point worth mentioning is yeah, there's this big move because you're right. The Greens are very well. We want uh, you know renewables and well, let's build wind turbines. Well, let's ask them the simple question. Will wind turbines are predominantly made of steel? Probably somewhere about 70% of it is steel. You need fiberglass, resin, plastics. You need iron or cast iron. You need copper, aluminium. Well, where do they think all these come from? Do they not understand that you're going to use fossil fuels to extract the resources to make the components of wind turbines? And therefore, What's the cost metric of this? Where do you get them from? What's the environmental impact? And then, of course, you end up largely scrapping wind turbines and putting them in landfill sites. And if we, as we said before we came on, on, on Earth, 
if you keep mass producing these on a global scale like the people want, well, in the end, you're going to start to impact the, the resources that you utilize to produce a wind turbine. And is anyone thinking of the consequences of that? No, they're not thinking of the consequences because you can't recycle components of wind turbines. It's not economically viable to do so. And it's, you know, the same with regards to solar cells. I mean, you know, there's a big move to, uh, well, we'll produce solar cells. Well, huge amounts of silicon is, is manufactured in, in China. So what happens if China says, well, we're not exporting to the West anymore, we're exporting to the global South. I mean, how's, how's the West going to be able to manufacture solar cells? And what's you know, the cost metric associated with, with that and going forward. And do we need to utilize fossil fuels to, to produce solar cells? And it's that complete lack of thought and understanding of the bigger picture of, of what, how you produce energy, what you need the energy for, what's, what's the, the long-term implications. So in the end, if you're apt to consume enormous amounts of fossil fuels to produce renewable energy sources, well, <laughs> You have to start questioning, not just from an environmental perspective, but going, well, what's the economic viability and what's the long-term implication of doing this? And I, I, I rarely see anybody discussing this. And for me, it's common sense. This is, this is the, the, you know, the base argument. If I'm going to implement an energy solution for my name, if I'm in government, I ask myself, okay, what are the implications? How much energy do we currently require? How much energy will we will that increase in five years, ten years? What's the energy mix? What's the viability of fossil fuels versus renewables? And where can I access fossil fuels? Where is where, where is it cost effective? I mean, is my geopolitical relations with Russia and China important in this regard? And therefore, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, trying to to collapse nations economically like Russia or financially, or even deposing Putin as the president. Do I need to think this through a little bit more? None of that thought process happens. So, yeah, I mean, Germany needs to. It needs to understand the energy mix and it needs to listen to its businesses who are screaming at them going, you know, our energy solution is completely unviable. I mean, you know, if we can't have an energy embargo with Russia because it will destroy what's left of our manufacturing base. And, and if, you know, if big business and industry and manufacturing is telling you this, you need to listen to them uh, because they understand far better than any government what the implication of getting the right energy mix is and just making these kind of knee-jerk reactions to a geopolitical uh, problem from your perspective, which the West does. And okay, that's their view and that's fine. But understand what the implications of policy decisions are and listen to those people in, in your nation who understand what that actually means in reality, rather than just going, well, we've made a decision and that's how we're doing things. And then, of course, in the West, when you make political decisions, there's so much political capital involved, they can't dare U-turn because then they go, well, if we do that, we'll be out of office. And a lot of these people, their life is being in politics. Okay, there's all fringe benefits, but if they're out of the political limelight, they lose political power, they're finished in politics. What are they going to do? So it's self-preservation that's also dictating ludicrous policies that affect the masses of you know nations, whether it's Germany, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, or anywhere else in Europe, and for you know, and in a broader context across Western nations. So what do you make then of this idea that the US is an energy superpower and can provide 
Europe with its energy needs or, you know, can help out dramatically. What do you think about that? Or are there other sources of energy? I mean, I think some German representatives went down to somewhere in the Middle East and they were trying to get a deal. Any thoughts on, you know, alternative sources? Okay, let's do, you mentioned Germany and it was Qatar. They, you know, they came out with this grandstand statement that Qatar was going to provide a huge percentage of, uh, of its LNG needs instead, without actually uh, first off asking, well, where's the LNG terminals in Germany, et cetera. But anyway, let's park that problem. And then, of course, they started to have discussions, and it was to do with contractual length. And, and of course, again, Germany's trying to dictate terms, and Qatar's going, hang on, this is how it works. You know, you want our supplies, we want a long-term agreement and, and contract in place. We don't want short-termism because you may decide in, in six months or a year you don't want our supplies anymore. And they haven't reached an agreement. And then there was this very woolly kind of agreement of, well, we'll work together in the future, but with no figures, no numbers, nothing of substance. It's just a cooperation agreement. But does that provide them with energy in the short term or the long term? No. I mean, how much LNG can Qatar provide? Well, maybe a small amount, but it's not going to be substitute the LNG that, uh, that, that Europe needs. It's rather like Australia. Yeah, it's a big producer, but it has existing clients that it has to fulfill and uh, those obligations. You can't just go, well, actually, sorry, we're not giving you your LNG and we'll we're going to provide it to Europe instead. And a good example was the United States. And maybe we can touch on, I mean, there's some contradictions in, in terms of their statements about being major, you know, shale oil and gas producers, because why are they constantly screaming at OPEC to produce more energy because of energy prices? Uh, if you're a major domestic and internal producer of energy, and like I said with Russia, Russia doesn't charge itself energy prices. It, it can produce energy very cheaply, so it serves its domestic economy. It's not affected by energy prices. So if the United States was a major energy producer, the argument would be, well, it shouldn't be so screaming at OPEC all the time to raise oil production because they're so annoyed with the oil price, because they massively import it. That's why it's affecting them. With regards to shale, oil, and gas, it's, I mean, I've done big, huge discussions of that in the past on the podcast, but in very simple terms, you have to constantly keep drilling new wells, and it's very expensive. And whilst, yes, shale sectors is, is having some sort of uh, recovery because of high, higher oil and gas prices, it's also got enormous long-term debts, hundreds of billions of dollars that it's still having to service. It, it's reluctant to start, obviously, drilling new wells, et cetera, because of the enormous cost implication. And so they're reluctant to spend the capex. They just want to keep the, the OPEX cost down, obviously, and uh, and maximize their profits. But the question is, how, how much energy does the United States have long term? I mean, given shale wells can last two, three years, sometimes less, occasionally sometimes more before they start to become unproductive then what's the long-term implication? And, and if the US was such a big LNG producer as it tries to convince Europe, when Europe turned to the, to the Americans and actually said, look, you know, it's one thing telling us you're going to give us all this energy, but let's, let's actually talk numbers. And they went, well, you know, we could give you 5 billion cubic meters. And they're going, well, hang on, we need 155 from, from Russia. 
And then it turned out the US couldn't even give them the five billion. They went to, to their Asian customers and went, well, can we give you five billion less and give it to Europe instead? Again, this the numbers don't stack up. So from my perspective, I'm not entirely trusting and believing the United States produces the energy it does for we just highlighted some very contradictory statements. And therefore, on that basis, they're not a long-term re uh, reliable supplier, given the unpredictabilities of the shale sector anyway. So we're looking around the world going, who are you going to get the supplies from? And of course, the other thing is the Global South will look after the Global South's needs. So never mind just Russia. I mean, China's increasing oil and gas production. All, granted, it's very modest, but it's gradually increasing it. And there's going to be more and more oil and gas exploration throughout the Global South. And therefore, on that basis, they can become major energy producers. But the question is, how much are they going to trust the West in the future? I mean, trust has just been destroyed because of these Russian sanctions. What the West doesn't understand is it goes, the, we have global support for our sanctions. Well, the global South doesn't support sanctions in any, and they haven't sanctioned Russia. It's just the West and, you know, and Japan and Australia, et cetera, who are implementing this. And the rest of the world views this very, very negatively. So this is going to have long-term implications. So Europe is not going to be in a position to be able to just switch away from, from Russian oil and gas quickly. I mean, even I think the European Commission came out and said, well, it'll probably be 2027. We're talking, you know, five years. Hmm. Well, you can't predict it's going to be five years. If you say it's five years, you're basically saying we don't have a clue. It could be 10 years. We might never do this. But in the meantime, you know, as we said, there are new global markets. So the West can't rely on Russia necessarily in the future, even supply the energy, uh, because they might just move to more reliable partners. So you know, I don't currently see how the rest of the world will support you know, Europe in, in alternative supplies. And in a sense, look at how the Middle East is rotating also away from the United States, where you know, the Saudis, Qataris, etc., are building and strengthening relations with the, with the Chinese and the Russians and view the multipolar world as the future. They view the United States and Europe as unreliable partners. So where are you going to source the energy from? It's going to be extremely difficult. And and the risk is that at some point in the future, they could end up with literally no energy. And that sounds outrageous, but we have to deal with realities. I mean, Russia may take a very dim view, and, and you know, if it can sell the energy elsewhere, then it will do so. And in the West, desire and belief that it can, you know, just go to the local supermarket and buy oil and gas and have it delivered the next day. They're going to learn an extremely brutal lesson. But sadly, it's you and I and anyone else who lives in Europe who are going to suffer the consequences. And all it's going to do is create more and more energy insecurity, food insecurity, huge economic financial damage and, in, and also societal impact. And I know people have said, oh, look at what's happening in Sri Lanka. And then going, well, that would never happen in the West. Now, I'm not saying it would happen to that extent. But, you know, we're certainly seeing a cost of living crisis and it's growing and it's engulfing people on lower incomes, the, you know, the so-called working class, as we would say in the UK. But it's going to, it's going to engulf the middle class and, and through the ranks of the middle class, who are the most leveraged. And it becomes an enormous problem that, you know, again, in your desire to crush one nation, 
you're destroying yourself in the process and not just in direct terms, but indirectly because of the optics that the rest of the world's going, this is unacceptable. You know, whatever your perception is, and even if you profusely disagree with Russia being in Ukraine, and some nations in the global south will, will say that, but they'll also say sanctioning Russia was not the answer. And actually threatening to destroy an entire nation's economy and, and indirectly remove their government as a consequence of your actions is completely unacceptable. And therefore, you know, that outweighs whatever our particular views might be about Russia being in Ukraine. I mean, some fully support them, some sit on the fence, and some will disagree. But fundamentally, they all disagree with the West's approach to, to the Ukraine war. And their argument is you should be seeking a peace agreement and, re and stopping the war, not trying to threaten and bully Russia, thinking that will end the war. I do want to touch on metals uh, before mm -hmm. we go. But before we do that, just very briefly, if you can, uh, what is going on in Sri Lanka? Is this related to food? And it seems like if we have an energy problem, we are going to have, a, a, as many people, commentators have been saying, there's going to be a food problem coming up here in the next, you know, few months. And arguably it's begun. I, it, what is going on in Sri Lanka? And I mean, another kind of softball question, I guess, but do you expect that to happen? And do you expect there to be food shortages? I mean, it seems like that's what everybody is saying. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Sri Lanka is an example. It's had huge economic financial problems. It's defaulted on its Western debt. It's got food insecurity, energy insecurity, literally can't pay its bills. And people will say that's an extreme example. But food insecurity is an enormous problem. I mean, not least because of, of the issue of the Ukraine war and exports. Of, uh, obviously, Ukraine's a, a sort of breadbasket for the Middle East and, and uh, particularly North Africa. So the risk is, are we going to start to see food shortages there now? Well, yes. And the risk, of course, is we're seeing nations stockpiling uh, soft commodities. So India's come out and said, look, we're not exporting wheat there the second biggest wheat exporter in the world behind China, ironically. So that's going to have broader implications. Nations are hoarding, they're hoarding commodities, they're, they're hoarding food, and because that's a natural reaction to, to global problems. So the risk is, of course, that in their infinite stupidity, the West went, well, we're sanctioning Belarus and Russia. They're the major producers of potash for fertilizer. Well, you're not going to get fertilizer exports. Potentially, so that's going to impact crop yields. The other problem is energy increases. You need energy to produce crops, so you're going to start causing huge food price escalation, and and you're going to damage food production because there might be businesses that go, we simply cannot produce the food anymore economically. So we're we're you know we're not lossly. We're not going to produce. I don't know. Or manufacture a ton of wheat at a loss. You know, I'm using a very simple example just to highlight a point. So the risk is food insecurity going forward. And we, again, think it's someone else's problem in the world. Well, it will become our problem and food prices are escalating. And I can use the Netherlands as a good example because we know it very well. They're big food producers. Yeah, sure. But if their energy costs are skyrocketing, then their food production costs are going to skyrocket. Is it viable for the businesses to carry on as energy costs are skyrocketing? Is it going to impact food production? Oh, I mean, we saw recently, being in the Netherlands, a hike in, in food costs. And we're seeing it across Europe, and it's only going to get worse as time goes on because of this problem with the, the food energy mix. 
markets. And you know, if you're importing food items and the energy costs in the world producing them skyrocket as well, then you're going to suffer the implications of higher food costs based on imports. So whether you import it, produce it domestically, you're going to be impacted by this. And if nations produce it and go, well, we're worried about future energy costs because maybe they're big energy importers. You know, like India imports a lot of energy, but it produces, you know, it's a big wheat producer. Well, it's going to go, well, in the future, we may need to stockpile because we might find that our own supplies are going to diminish because energy keeps skyrocketing in costs. And so therefore, the protectionist angle of food producers comes about, which can produce you know, serious shortages, even in Western nations. And I've noticed even in the UK, I think it was the Bank of England came out and admitted, you know, talked about serious problems in, in the food and energy sector. So they're starting to grasp, even though, again, for me, it's something I talked about three or four years ago. I said, we're going to have food and energy insecurity very soon. And when the pandemic hit, I was going, this is a major problem. Again, I wrote to Western governments who completely ignored me as though, well, this isn't a problem because, again, it's like I go to the supermarket and buy food. What's the problem? Well, do you understand how you're able to do that? Do you understand how that food's produced, where it's produced? What are the, the risks, dependencies, and assumptions you're making that it arrives in your supermarket on time? So the, the, that's an enormous problem, and it's only likely to escalate because, again, there needs to be a global consensus as to we have a huge problem. What do we need to to, to do to circumvent this. And we're going to have to start having a far better global approach to food and energy uh, requirements in the future and make sure that what's coming and is ongoing isn't repeated in the future. But that's a huge mind shift in global thinking, particularly from the Western perspective. But Well, it, it all seems very precarious when you describe this. And just in, as I read the news, it seems to me I've, I've never seen the West really in my lifetime. It, it's never felt this vulnerable. When we think of Europe and its energy insecurity, it, it just seems incredibly vulnerable. But let's get to metals now. So do you track the supply chains and who's making what? Uh, what do you follow in the metals area? What can you tell us? Well, obviously... Maybe we, we, I mean, obvious ones are like gold. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other metals. But the, with regards to, to gold and silver, there's inherent risks. And we saw this during the pandemic where because of the COVID thing, mothballed operations, refiners shut down, and then there was uh, supply shortages. And I said, or I've said this previously, I mean, gold and silver prices are massively manipulated. This is a statement of fact. But what we noticed during the pandemic, silver got to $30 an ounce, I think, because there was a lot less silver being physically produced and trying to marry the paper and the, the physical markets, it was increasingly difficult to do so. So they had to raise the, the price of silver on a spot basis. I think going forward, particularly in Western nations, there's policy decisions coming out with gold. Refiners going, we're not handling gold. That isn't, you know... Uh, does is is not carbon neutral, so that's going to reduce gold supply in the West, potentially, which has serious ramifications for for the gold markets uh, domestically in 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 Western nations. Long term, you'll see gold and silver reach a proper price discovery, because as I've always said, at some point, the West will run out of 
physical metal that's available in gold and silver markets and true price discovery will have to happen. In a broader context, I've looked at quite a lot of metals learned, and there are serious concerns again about uh, long-term supplies. But again, if you start to cut Russia out of it, you're going to affect things like palladium and platinum, et cetera, these markets. And a lot of these markets are concentrated in like South Africa with platinum, for example. And the question is, what's, what, what's the short-term implications if these economies crater very badly? What's the long-term implication for the West in terms of, well, maybe South Africa, because of the BRICS alliance, may, may start to go, well, we're going to supply exclusively the global South. And so well, what does the West do in terms of sourcing metals? And, and it's not just them. You could have like rhodium, for example, and, and then there's rare earth metals, which are largely produced in China. And the West is massively dependent on those. But I mean, we won't list them, but we could list 50 applications. I mean, permanent magnets is one of the obvious ones. And the West is dependent on China in that regard. And the question is, again, is sourcing alternative supplies. And in a reliable sense, where, where's the West going to source them from? And what's the, the energy implication of sourcing those? And where are they going to be produced? And, and therefore, on that basis, there's all this uncertainty. Because the other thing that I think that's affecting the metals markets in terms of from a consumption basis is, again, the global south. The global south is ramping up enormous amounts of production and infrastructure development and uh, developing manufacturing and industry. So their consumption levels are going to increase. And if the West is trying to compete with those in terms on a consumption basis, then they're going to potentially have serious problems in sourcing not just rare earth metals. And it's one thing, you know, people in the US going, well, you just need to produce more of them. Well, do you have to have those rare earth metals. You have to incur enormous exploration costs. Is it, again, economically viable to, to, to turn it into production? Can you produce enough? There's a lot of speculation uh, with regards to, to mining and exploration costs and, and production. We're just making assumptions. Well, we have these these metals will just produce them well truth is you don't have them and and then there's now a big move from the united states to try and go to africa and and try and get in there and and try and source a whole bunch of metals and other resources saying well there's markets here we need to 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 get in and exploit those and 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 obviously that's how we'll make up shortfall but again africa's moving on there's a lot of russian chinese presence there they're not very keen to deal with the West because the West, to put it diplomatically, completely abused Africa for decades and beyond through colonialism, etc. So therefore, they're more reluctant to deal with the West. Who's going to finance all these developments? There's no one forthcoming in finance, except you know the Chinese all all bankroll and finance um, you know, infrastructure projects and mining developments, and has a huge presence there, anyways. But the West is certainly finally woken up to the reality that not only is it just the oil and gas issues and soft commodities, but in the metals markets across the board, whether it's uh, zinc, aluminium, whether it's copper, whether it's tin, whether it's lead, whether it's gold, silver, rhodium, palladium, platinum, etc., they're going to have enormous problems sourcing these uh, these uh, metals in the future. And... I think this is why we've started to see some sort of fracturing 
like the LME market with nickel as you know what's the what's the issue going forward for metals in terms of accessing the you know physical metal and being able to sell it into the market there seems to be shortages now what's causing those shortages i mean is it partly again because very simple terms if you what's how much ore body do you have to ex, to extract just say a kilo of any metal in they're rising sharply so I mean, I, I really like the mining sector. I'm interested in, in, in mining companies and what they're doing. But I think investors, and this is an investment advice, you have to be extremely careful. I've made this point before that we're in an unprecarious situation where there's economic financial problems and a lack of energy or spiking energy costs. And that's going to impact the bottom line of miners. And you might find miners might have very good fundamentals, but they can't operate and function in the world currently and therefore on that basis operations may may be curtailed you may have exploration opportunities curtailed because it's you know the risk is look we're going to spend way too much on exploration with no guarantee of uh, a viable production in the future so it's just this spiraling problem where you you risk in the short term and go forward shortages of critical metals we we need to utilize in all sorts of manufacturing and production in the future and and again it's one of those things if you have access to cheap energy and you have access to 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 those uh critical metal or critical resources or commodities like china increasingly has quite a you know like rare earth metals it can produce them a lot cheaper it can dictate in the future who it might want to sell them to or not sell them to and if you start to try and create a war in taiwan with china and then maybe China will say to the United States, you're not having any of these rare earth metals. And if Europe supports them, you're not having them either. And, you know, we're not here to list, but there's so many applications and requirements for rare earth metals in just about anything electronic today that, that exists. Well, that has massive ramifications. So the, the question is, in, in a broader sense for metals, in general, there's certainly serious concerns about their availability. The, the about long-term or short, medium, long-term production, exploration opportunities. And I think it all focuses again around energy. And also in a broader sense, you know, markets are beginning to go, well, we're going to sell to friendlier nations where, you know, the, the global south will take up a lot of uh, the production availability. And, you know, it's down to who do you trust to to finance these and, and who do you trust to sell them into markets? And you know, are you going to choose a nation that threatens to sanction you every five minutes if you don't do what they say? Or And these are all things that are playing out in every facet. So I think it is potentially risks affecting all the, the metals markets and uh, with varying degrees of, of uh, ramifications. But in terms of gold, silver, I mean, for me, they're hugely underpriced. It's self-explanatory. And and it's very clear central banks are buying them, Russia, China, and even Iran have enormous gold reserves. And other nations across the world are buying it because they see gold as a, an important future component of monetary system. I mean, Russia's kind of come out and sort of said that recently about backing the ruble with gold. China's talked, and even the back end of last year, some senior Beijing official went, gold's going to be a very important component of the monetary system globally in the future. And, so silver is going to be extremely important. Some as a kind of junior monetary metal, but more importantly, industrial application. And it's a finite resource, and but it's going to be needed. We don't again don't recycle enough of it. And we because it's not 
cost effective. If energy costs are going up, it's even less cost effective. So I do see a revaluation in those prices, but only at the point when the paper markets are un totally unsustainable. And at some point, I think we will likely reach that point. It's becoming more and more critical, but we haven't reached the absolute point of criticality. But it will happen at some point. And the reason for suppressing gold price is very simple. If it was $2,500 an ounce tomorrow, which it won't be, but if it was, you would see the biggest move out of fiat and fiat-based assets into gold. You, there would be uh, major institutions, high net, net worth individuals going, the dollar's dead. If it's this price, get out of everything that's paper made. And there'd be this enormous scramble for gold that doesn't exist at all because there isn't enormous amounts of supply. If you want to buy a ton of gold, good luck sourcing it within two or three months and you won't be paying spot price. You'd probably be paying 20, 30% over above current spot price. That's the real market. Paper markets are just illusionary, as is, for me, all paper markets associated with metals. I mean, sometimes we're seeing a massive hike in prices that isn't justified. But in the case of gold and silver, they're massively underpriced because of enormous manipulation to suppress the price because the dollar's king. They go to war over the dollar. They have regime change. So we're saying to preserve so-called sanctity of the dollar. Well, if that is the case, and it indeed is the case, do we think they're not going to manipulate the price because they don't want everybody piling into gold and, and effectively then essentially saying we have no confidence in the dollar, but I mean, old dollar confidence subjects is, is a thing, it is an hour's conversation in of itself, but because there is increasing <laughs> and less confidence in the dollar because of US, you know, weaponizing it all. Well, it, it absolutely is. We could go on and on and we've already gone double, but I do want to take uh, make a couple of points and, and ask you for some closing thoughts here. But your point is very well taken on margins. I mean, Mark Bristow, he was talking maybe six or seven months ago, We, the CEO of Barrick, he was talking about how there was almost like a peak in margins that had been reached. And I, I took that to mean that energy and energy prices were starting to perk up at that point. And that he felt like the, that was my interpretation of what he was saying. But, you know, to your point, as energy prices get higher, it's harder to mine at a, at a nice cost. And further, like the high grade deposit becomes all the more important. And those are exactly the kind of deposits that we're running out of. Mm. And so your point is very well taken. And, and if energy were to stay high, then one would imagine that gold uh, would also have to rise. And I'm not asking for price predictions at all, but just as a logical argument, it seems to me that gold would have to go higher with higher energy costs because it simply costs more money to take it out of the ground. So it's inherently more valuable. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I did in the past, mining companies and their viability. And, you know, I had this enormous spreadsheet and used to plug in all these figures and and then ascertain, you know, for me, the long-term viability. I mean, just looking at, you know, this company produces 30,000 ounces of gold is meaningless. I mean, and you have to look at the long-term implications. So for me, it's a very fascinating subject. It's something I pay in a lot of attention to. And it's absolutely right. It, we, it, unless there's some way of curbing energy costs, then it's going to cause enormous problems in the entire mining sector, whatever it might be, 
some of the metals we've just highlighted as one example. Well, it is in nations that have enormous spiking energy costs because of a lack of access. But and this is a this is a bit of speculation, but the issue is if the global south gets energy for much cheaper prices and it has the exploration uh, potential and, and production potential and it doesn't need as high a grade, then the question is, do they become more viable? And okay, then there's the issue where the West is trying to move in. And this could create enormous political instability in in, in the likes of Africa because then Suddenly, there's, it's a commodities war that's going on inside these nations and a desperation to control resources. Now, this isn't a new thing by any stretch of the imagination, but it could get considerably worse. But yeah, from, from my perspective, the, the risk is that you're going to have to raise the price of gold just on the basis of, from a mining perspective, because if your operational costs are skyrocketing, and, there's, and of course, conversely, your capital expenditure is going to skyrocket if you have to do that. So something has to give. So there's an argument that says, well, we can't produce, uh, our margins become either so wafer thin that we're not going to continue producing uh, gold. And there's going to be a demand for gold, demand for silver, demand for other metals. And if the production craters, then that which is available is, is you know, it, the, the cost of commodities will skyrocket. And if commodities skyrocket in metals, well, again, we're back to this point. That's going to cause a, a ripple effect with producer price inflation continuing to skyrocket the end products that we buy at shops, uh, so wherever it might be, we're going to skyrocket. So, again, it's the fundamental point that, you know, and this is why the idea that we're going to hike interest rates is going to curb inflation. They don't even understand what's causing inflation. We don't have overheating economies in the West. It's complete nonsense. And U.S. GDP, and GDP is not worth the paper it's written on, fell in the first quarter 1.4%. That's not an overheating economy. We don't have overheating economies. Our economies, are, for me, have been largely in recession since 2008. Because if you look at what we actually produce in the West, it's very little. We just recycle bits of debt or recycle debt, and, and it's in a consumption-based economy, service sector, and that's not producing anything of any wealth or substance. So our economies have been cratering a long time. They aren't overheating. It's The factors, as we've just highlighted some of them, is what's causing you know, enormous inflation. And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any indication as to how that inflation is going to uh, to dissipate. And if we increasingly have more and more shortages of all the fundamental constituents of how we exist. So energy is the, the thing that everything sits on and then we produce goods. So if we produce goods. What goes in those goods? All the resources, they're getting more expensive. And, you know, things we've just highlighted, there's no answer to that. And even Western central banks are going... Do you know what? We've got no control over inflation. So what they're effectively admitting is raising interest rates is meaningless. To your point, <laughs> Paul, who cares about the inflation index when oil's at $120 a barrel or $115 a barrel? That's the real inflation rate if based on yes. this conversation. That I, isn't that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because and, uh, and then that's a multiplying effect. You know, the, I mean, if oil's double, it, the cost of everything isn't going to be double. It's triple, quadruple, ten times. It depends because you you produce a barrel of oil, and then eventually that barrel of oil translates into me producing goods in a factory somewhere in the world. Well, it's not a simple, straightforward metric. 
because as inflation rises, people want higher wages. So, you know, there's always this cost metric that you have to factor in, and it's a multiplier. It's not linear. And that's that's something, again, that's not factored into people's thinking. I, I think I'll probably introduce this podcast as a, as a comprehensive critique of the Western mindset, almost, or economic political mindset. Do you have any parting thoughts for policymakers or for people in general? I mean, it's a bit of a pessimistic view. Are you pessimistic? I assume. How, well, I what are your see, closing thoughts for us? You know, I see it's just being realistic. I, I deal with reality. I'm not, you know, American once said to me, you know, you know are, you, are you the half empty or half full glass kind of guy? And I went, what do you mean? I know what they meant, but I wanted to make a point. They went, well, if it's half empty, you're a pessimist. If it's half full, you're an optimist. I go, I don't see either. I see a glass. And I understand what the re- of liquid. I understand the reality of what that means. And I said, and what does a realist see? It doesn't see a half empty or half full glass. And we have to deal with reality. So for me, this has been a long-term problem. It's something I highlighted was always going to be a problem long before the pandemic and there was a kind of an inevitability because again it's back to this point that they contained inflation inside the the financial bubbles whether it's equities bond housing sector real estate whatever they they created all these bubbles and they thought in their mindset well we don't we don't create inflation you have you've created massive inflation in these bubbles and eventually, these bubbles will seep into Main Street. Of course, the pandemic accelerated that because they printed trillions of dollars and put it in Main Street. The difference is that, that as these bubbles sort of, I mean, we've seen some marginal movements from my perspective, at least in equities. Well, if that money seeps out of, out of that bubble, where's that money going to go? It has to find a home. So that creates inflation because you're sucking money out of one inflationary bubble and sticking it somewhere else as well as all the printed money to stop the world collapsing. So there is no viable uh, solution to this in the short term. What, But the, the long-term solution, or maybe the solution tomorrow, is, is the West particularly has to, to grow up and behave like an adult and get the Chinese and the Russians and everyone else and say, look, we're in a serious problem. What can we collectively do globally to address the food, energy, insecurity? To address these inflationary problems, to address the issue of a shortage of critical, you know, hard and soft commodities, wherever it might be in the world, what are we going to do to address them? And then, you know, we might start to be able to, well, hopefully you find some intelligent people in the West who understand reality and actually begin to address these fundamental problems. At the moment, we're a million miles from this in the West. And of course, increasingly, as I said, the global South has a better perspective on things, a different thought process, a different way of going, we can cooperate with each other and work for mutual benefit. So they're beginning to address some of these problems. But the problem is the global South feels extremely threatened by the West, and rightly so, throughout history and even to this day. I mean, And what are they supposed to think when the West is all getting more aggressive with war, when they're seeing their food supply is threatened and nobody's talking about that. What are they supposed to think of the West when the West is just doubling down and not trying to make peace? What are they supposed to think? Are they going to trust them when the West is basically saying, who cares to everybody who doesn't have enough food coming in? They don't even talk about it other than the fact that there's going to be a big shortage, we think. Well, yes, but that's the, the, the well, 
their kind of their mindset is well this is historical we're just going to go through like join okay the arab spring we're not here to discuss that but one of the ramifications of them fallout because of food shortage so their attitude is well it'll create some instability in, in you know maybe africa and, uh, you know maybe in the middle east and to some degree and uh, you know maybe the you know Southeast Asia, but it's not our problem because we'll be over. It's not going to, you know, but they haven't realized it is their problem and they're going to face this problem. And the other thing they don't comprehend is how are Western people going to react to this? Now, here's just a scenario. It's not necessarily going to be that the, the case, but let's just assume, and the United States is a good example of this, that if we have skyrocketing inflation, we have food insecurity and energy insecurity in the United States and economies cratering and the financial system collapsing. And we have a nation of 330 or whatever million Americans with 600 million guns who, you know, I've always used this argument when guns are in a defensive capacity, that's one thing. But when you they start to potentially become offensive, when, then you can have total societal meltdown. And, you know, it's like the Wild West again. Now, that's an extreme viewpoint. But it doesn't mean that that can't happen to some degree. We're already seeing evidence of food uh, insecurity and, and energy insecurity affecting the, the poorer sections and the lower income earners in Western nations. This is already a statement of fact. So if that continues to spread, then the risk is you cause major societal problems. And they think, oh, that doesn't happen. You know, that only happens in Sri Lanka or wherever it's not going to happen in the Western world. And they haven't comprehended because, again, it's back to this conditioning that, you know, from central banks, oh, we'll eventually normalize interest rates. Well, you know, we're going to normalize uh, monetary policy. Economies are doing fine. You know, it's okay. There's no serious problems. I mean, people believe this to be a reality. They don't understand that, in fact, Western nations are very precarious but not just energy reasons and also food insecurity to varying degrees. And But generally, their economies have been gutted for decades. And when your economy depends on the financialization, uh, then, of, of, you know, and all the problems the financial sector is incurring and all the huge risks and problems that clearly and self-evidently exist, then, you know, you're setting yourself up for a major fall. And, but Western nations and most Western people are oblivious to this, and but they need to be cognizant of the fact that this is a serious problem. Now, to what extent it impacts us at this point is is difficult to ascertain. But because in the Northern Hemisphere we're moving into spring and summer, what happens as the, you know, the food production in the Northern Hemisphere, the, the growing season? What happens if that's severely impacted? What happens if Energy costs do continue to skyrocket because of energy embargoes and ludicrous policy decisions made in the West with regards to Russia. And, you know, and we then move into autumn and winter when people's energy needs are going to escalate sharply because it's colder. People need to heat themselves. So their homes. So what happens if they can't heat their homes? They can't feed themselves. They can't feed their families. And they, you know, and it might be, well, we can just about feed the children, but we're going to be starved because we have to feed the children, because that's obviously the priority. These are already factoring into Western societies on a smaller scale, but it's impacting, in the UK, millions of homes at the poor end of, of the, the economic spectrum, the financial spectrum. So 
we're already seeing it. It's just when it engulfs the nation. And if it does, what's the ramifications? And that then causes enormous political and societal instability. And when you have vacuums creating that, it's very concerning for me. What what replaces that vacuum? And these are things we need to be taking seriously instead of pretending it's someone else's problem and kind of almost denying, being in denial that uh, we do have all the economic, financial and impending societal problems. Because denial is one of the worst things. Again, that's not optimism and pessimism. The realist goes, this is the risk. What are we going to do about it? At the moment, we see a lot of words, but we don't see anyone taking any actions. And chances are, by the time they react to it, their answer will be, print trillions, just keep printing. Just give everything, give just just give everyone every everything they need, not realizing what's that going to do in inflation return. It's going to make the problem infinitely worse because this is precisely what happened in Weimar Germany. And I'm not saying we reached Weimar Germany uh, proportions, but printing money is not the answer. But that's the other thing. What's been our solution to everything since 2008? When there's a problem, bail it out, print money, yeah, just. You can't afford it. Just, 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 just take more debt out. Take loans. Match your credit cards out. That's our answer to everything. Is just because we're so, as we said, hell bent on on a consumption-based economy. You've got to. We have to consume. So keep consuming. And of course, when you get this instability and consumption is no longer viable, and and people's jobs depend on that consumption, you, it's just a recipe for for huge systemic problems and. That's where we are currently. And until someone in the West actually sits down and says, okay, look, we have ideological problems. In fact, we loathe and detest you, Russia, but we've finally woken up and realized that there is a far bigger problem here. And even if they're so desperate to preserve their political careers because it's, it's their gravy trap, they need to understand that eventually when the masses realize the reality and hopefully the reality is bad as we're suggesting happens, if it does happen, what do they think the masses are going to think of the political system, and what? How do they think they're going to react to it? They're not getting, you know, even if they don't care about people, they they surely care about themselves. They should be extremely concerned as to what the outcome is going to be for them if things blow up, and people at some point will turn around and go, "Well, I'm sorry, I'm sick of you blaming Russia for everything. You did nothing, and I, everything I had, I've now in in principle lost. What are you going to do to resolve?" And the truth is they don't have any ability to resolve it because they don't have the maturity to go and sit down with the global south and go, what, what can we do? We need China, what can we do? We need your help. Russia, you, you mm-hmm. produce enormous amounts of energy and commodities. And you can, you know, can, is, where can we start mass producing food in the world to lower the cost of food? Can we increase energy production? And lower the cost of energy. Can what can we do globally? Because we're we're in a global pro- crisis, and we have to address mm. it with global solutions, not protectionism, short termism, looking after an individual nation's interests, and not understanding actually you're not looking after your own interests. You're shooting yourself in the head and foot, as we're seeing with Europe and Russian sanctions. Well, we are deglobalizing just as we need to be globalizing more than ever, or at least, you know, that's a loaded word, but at least working in partnership, you know, or as you say, cooperation. Well, Paul from the Sirius Report, 
Thank you so much for joining us. This is by far the longest interview we have done on the Northern Miner podcast, but it's been fascinating and I very much appreciate you being on and I hope you will be on again. Oh, no, thank you. I appreciate you asking. It, you know, it's it, we very much appreciate having the opportunity to have a chat. And yes, we most certainly will do in the future. And maybe then we can look at some things in a greater level of detail and assess specifically why these are problems rather than talking in the high level. But if you don't have the high level discussion first, I think the detail will just get lost. You know, you're not seeing the proverbial wood for the trees on that basis. So that's why I think initially talking at a very high level is extremely important because then the detail will make more sense. Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to go very general on this discussion here and just really introduce our audience to you and your biting critique of the Western political economic class. Thank you once again, Paul. No, pleasure. And thank you, too. And there you have it, Paul from the Sirius Report. I hope you enjoyed that. It is by far the longest interview I have done on this podcast, but Paul has such elaborate answers that it's, you just don't want to cut him off. Sometimes you have to jump in and do something, but I tried to have as light of touch as possible. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. And again, coming up tomorrow, we have the Global Mining Symposium. Just go to events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.